Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for providing the theme music. They are celebrating their 10th anniversary, which is wonderful. And there's all kinds of music and show information at their website, respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. You'll find him tweeting very humorously at twitter.com slash Dave Rabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. And if I do that enough times, at some point I'll find a way to describe that that actually makes it sound funny. But just take my word for it, he's funny. Thanks also to All About Jazz for carrying the show. You'll find each episode at their website, allaboutjazz.com. And there's also a widget there that you can use. And if you put that widget on your website, and the widget uh, just displays the most recent episode of the show, if you put that on your website, let me know because I will mention your website in my newsletter. Thanks. This show is member-supported, so if you like what you hear, please do become a member, which is super easy to do. You can do it for as little as 10 bucks a month, or if you like to pay all at one time, you can do it for $110 a year. And then there are membership levels above that up to the sponsor level that gets you mentioned on every show. And in any case, all the information about that is at thejazzsession.com slash join. A couple things I wanted to mention. One is I have started to post photos and uh, kind of Twitter-based recaps of shows that I go to at thejazzsession.com. So if you're one of the people who just subscribes to the show uh, using iTunes or some other podcast aggregator, then you might want to consider going over and uh, taking a peek at the show every once in a while because – or at the website, I should say, because there's other stuff up there besides just the uh, you know episodes listed. So – that's one thing I wanted to let you know about. The other is that uh, I put a lot of stuff, jazz and otherwise, up on Twitter, and a lot of people seem to enjoy following me there. So if you are a Twitter user and you would like to follow me, you can do it easily by following Jason D. Crane. D is in David. Speaking of Twitter, that's how I met uh, today's guest, as a matter of fact, one of the many cool, eclectic people that I've met this summer uh, based on Twitter contacts. His name is Ben Syverson. He's a trumpet player, and he contacted me on Twitter just out of the blue and said, hey, I'd like to let you hear my album, Cracked Vessel. I said, send it my way, and he did, and uh, I really, really enjoyed it, and I think you will too. Here's a track from Cracked Vessel and then a conversation with Ben Syverson.
My guest is the trumpeter and composer Ben Cyberson. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Great. Thank you. Uh, we, I, I think I only even became aware of your existence in this enormous city full of musicians like a week ago. And I think the day that you contacted me about your record, then we ended up running into each other that evening. Yeah. And I've, now I've since seen you play uh, yeah. live, which is great. Yeah. Um, and I really loved the record. Oh, and great. one of the things that that just points out to me is it, one thing about New York is it, that's not a mark at all of where you might or might not be in any kind of hierarchy. It's just there is so much happening here at any one time. It's impossible to keep track of it. And I think that's one of the things that's very exciting for me as a listener. And I wonder if it's the same way for you as a musician, where it's almost like you can turn around any corner and there's a whole other thing to explore. Absolutely. I mean, I, I came to New York about three and a half years ago and that's absolutely been what I've discovered. It's, I mean, both parts of what you're saying, like both the fact that you met me and then so quickly, like I contacted you on Twitter. And then that night, um, you know, you came to a show of a, of a friend of mine, Ken, uh, uh, Kendall Eddie, we, who we used to be housemates in Boston. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like New York is the biggest small town, uh, that I've ever experienced for sure. And, but at the same time, there's so many little, little musical worlds that you can be part of and that you can experience. And, um, um, you know, I've, I've sort of in certain ways gotten myself outside of the jazz world at times. And there, and there's all these other worlds there where someone who's just doing one thing is maybe not going to be aware of it. And, you know, turns out that they have neighbors that are doing this other amazing thing. And down the street is someone else doing something totally different. That's also completely amazing. So it's really inspiring. Yeah. It's interesting. We can keep, we can even shrink this down more that uh, I met you in person seeing Kendall Eddie play with Carmen Stoff and Carmen Stoff, right. As, uh, as people are listening to this show, Carmen was the previous guest to you. Mm-hmm. And in the interview with her, one of the things that she said was, uh, you know, if I want to see uh, Shoro one night, I can go do that. And mm-hmm. quality music the next night, I can do that. And jazz mm-hmm. the next night, I can do that. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, you operate. And not just those things, but really, really sincere, high-level versions of those things. Exactly. It's not just like some people out there like that got a couple of records and are like, oh, I'm going to play quality music today. But it's like people who are either from that tradition or like have, have dedicated themselves to it in a really serious way. Sure. Is that uh, that access to, to musicians and the, that kind of like high-level hive mind what brought you here mm-hmm. three and a half years ago? I would say it was, yeah. I, I was living in Boston for a couple of years before that. And, um, taking kind of advantage of whatever I could musically in Boston. But I was, uh, I remember a conversation I had had with, with a guitarist or something in Boston. And I was going to sit in with different people. And, uh, there's a place called Wally's in, in Boston. That's sort of the storied old jazz club where people go to sit in and some other places. And he'd heard me in a couple of contexts, a couple of different like musical sort of settings. And he seemed confused and asked me, so, and in retrospect, this all seems sort of weird, but like, uh, are you a jazz trumpet player or a funk trumpet player? And I was, and I, and I kind of didn't understand the context of the question in a way because I was just like playing, you know, music and, um, unbeknownst to him, I was also going over to, you know, hang out with the guys at the lily pad and, and play free, you know, free improvised music. So it was, it was like those boundaries seemed much more present in Boston in a way that I wasn't really, it didn't didn't seem to work for me, you know. Whereas here, everyone's kind of doing a lot of stuff, and um, some of the first musicians that I really kind of met and started playing with regularly were actually people playing Balkan folk music when I came to New York, 
And, um, you know, I met them through a friend and so on. And then through there, it turns out that some of those guys are, uh, and men and women are, um, doing a lot in the sort of the jazz improv scene. Like I was started playing in a band that had uh, bassist Ruben Radding playing bass and he's playing electric bass in this band, but he's mostly known as an improviser on upright bass and Matt Moran playing top on. And he's mostly known as a vibraphone player, you know, playing improv stuff. And so um, it's sort of this, yeah, it's, it's everyone has these little other secret musical lives. It seems like, which is great. have to uh you're still very active in the in the balkan world do you mm-hmm. do you have to kind of com- compartmentalize from a technique standpoint or a language standpoint what in in each of these little worlds or are there ways in which they can bleed over into one another they definitely bleed over and um but they're definitely compartmentalized as well but i don't think i think about either so much um the 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 context for each of those kinds of music are pretty different. Like if I'm playing Balkan music, it's generally for people dancing or celebrating or some way. Sometimes we're playing for lis- uh, listening, sit down audiences, but that's kind of the exception. Um, but it's a, it's a very certain context. And in my head, I think I'm just kind of like hearing, you know, hearing what the trumpet should be doing there and not really intellectualizing necessarily. Sure. Um, although there is a very different vocabulary if any of your listeners haven't checked out eastern european brass band music it's a very specific and very interesting thing and the trumpet players i mean are some of the best in the world over there and um they play in a way that's i think really very different from say american jazz trumpet players typically would you know had you had experience in that genre before you came to new york or was it something you just jumped into. I had started playing it in Boston a little bit. A couple of people I knew there who I was playing jazz with were kind of like, oh, would you like to play some Balkan music? And at first I sort of took it up as a way to learn how to play in odd meters and have a couple of musical challenges. And bit by bit, I sort of discovered it's this whole other world that's, um, uh, to me, uh, interesting and different in a way that's complementary to what I'm trying to do sort of jazz-wise. You uh, you recently released a record called Cracked Vessel, which to me is kind of another example, although not drawing on the Balkan world, but of right. of music that uh, certainly sonically to me 
draws on a very wide palette. I mean, everything from distorted guitars to mm-hmm. effects to even just the way that the the three of you interact. Mm-hmm. Um, before we say more about the record, though, can you tell us about the people that you play with? Sure, on? absolutely. Um, so on this record is my what's become sort of my regular trio, and we've started calling the band Cracked Vessel after the record um, since Ben Syverson trio always seemed a little <laughs> kind of lame and square. So, um, so now the band is called Cracked Vessel, but that's been sort of a, a ongoing process, if you will. Sure. But um, uh, I'll, t- I'll start by talking about Jeremy. Who, Jeremy Gustin is the drummer on this album, and he's been um, been playing for a little in that band for a little bit longer than than Xander. And Jeremy, I met um, in Boston. Actually, I was living in New York at the time, but I'd had a different guitar player in the band, and he was also living in Boston still. There was a period where I was kind of going between a lot and, and uh, the guitar player and, and Jeremy were roommates. And so when I met Jeremy, I was kind of looking for a new drummer and, and he has a band that's a rock band called the Rex complex. And he writes uh, most of the music for it. And they had been working on a new album and he played me some of the, some of the tracks. And even though it's not improvised really at all, I kind of had this, inclination that he would work really well for what I was trying to do just because of his approach to sounds and and um I don't know there's a certain vibe that you pick up from musicians I mean I mean both of these guys Jeremy and Xander whom who you know who's the guitar player Xander Naylor um in this in this trio they both have this sort of I guess unpretentious kind of almost like fun vibe where oh okay we're playing free we're we're free improvising right now okay we'll just play you know and it's not like oh this is very serious music and it's going to be um you know it has to like do all these it's just it's just very natural to them and so even though um uh in Jeremy's case he really I mean he really doesn't play jazz gigs at all he plays a lot of like he does a lot of really interesting kind of rock stuff and producing and things like that and um my band is the most out thing he does but like he just kind of jumped right in and it was perfect and um anyway the guitar player uh this this uh this friend of mine named David Slaninger who was playing in my band at the time he had to move back to Boston because he was having wrist problems he came to New York and then he left and so we were kind of on the hunt for a replacement and uh, I met Xander and heard him play and we played duo a little bit and he ended up being sort of the perfect replacement both for my band and for Jeremy's band. So um, he's a little younger, he had recently kind of graduated from the new school um, by way of Vermont and um, you know again just this sort of really kind of open approach that's that has the right vibe, you know the right just the right kind of attitude. And um, he and Jeremy, since they're playing together all the time in between my band and the rock band and the, and the Rex complex, they have a great, at this point, they have a really great rapport going between the two of them. And, um, you know, that that comes out of also like a personal rapport that they have where they just are both these kind of like kind of silly people almost. And I'm when we're on tour, I'm sort of the taskmaster a little bit, <laughs> but I guess that's my job. So it's OK. <laughs>
Yeah, I, I love listening to the two of them together. Uh, yeah. I mean, really, you've already articulated it, but that, that, I, that sense of joyful interplay. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the record, the record has a tendency to kind of go places almost like on a dime or just to suddenly mm-hmm. make a turn and yeah. change directions in a, in a really interesting way that doesn't feel, that doesn't feel forced. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us something about the, the sessions that led to the, to the record, the actual recording of it, how much, sure. uh, you know, was kind of mapped out and how much happened in the moment? Sure. Well, we, um, I think we recorded it in two, two days, two, two sessions and we did it, uh, we set up, um, essentially all in one room. I wanted to really make it as organic as possible. And um, uh, we had Don Godwin, who actually plays tuba in one of the Balkan bands I'm in. He's a great recording engineer, and he sort of specializes in, in like, kind of setups where where it's live-ish and where it's, like, all in one room, and we really did it. We could maintain eye contact. We had sort of minimal buffers. Um, turned out there was people afterwards talked to me about trying to like do remixes of some of the tracks and there was a little too much bleed because of how we'd set it up for that. But I think that the, the organic kind of spontaneous nature of the recording session made that worth it. And so, um, we had been playing, we had played a number of gigs on these tunes. Um, the album is mostly like compositions of mine with two improvisations in there. Um, but the, the line is a little bit blurry. Like there's a lot of improvisation in the, in the compositions and, um, some of the compositions are, there's a couple that are kind of a head solo, a version of a head solo head where it's head and improv of some sort and then out head. Um, but then there are others where it's, where it's much more through composed in some way, either, um, uh, some sections, maybe I'll have an idea for just like how we're going to approach playing it, but it's, it's not so much based on like a, like chord changes or forms or something like that. And, and I feel like it's not this, it's definitely not the sort of music that I could just bring to a bunch of jazz musicians and say, play, you know, it's, it's a lot more based on kind of developing an idea for the structure of how these things go. Um, almost like a narrative structure for some of them. I mean, some of the pieces like, um, as we did the session, we'd, we'd play some improvisations just to get warmed up, and then we'd play some tunes, and listening back, you know, the, the real key to making some of them work was, was sort of the length of these open-ended sections and the proportions of everything, and just hearing how um, the unexpected moments kind of come out at just the right time, and, and getting that is really a delicate a delicate thing, but sure. um, but I think it I think it I think it worked out. And it sounds like it was pretty dependent on the band having already. Yeah. Uh, an identity and an idea mm-hmm. of how to interact. Yeah, I mean, to me, I'm very much um, a fan of the kind of music that is written for a band. I mean, I'm a big fan of bands in general. Like, since I moved to New York, I learned very quickly that if I'm going to see a jazz show, um, I'm going to be much better off going to see a band that's been around for a while as a band instead of some superstar musician that I like with some sidemen that they hired. Um, it's just a much more rewarding experience. And so to me, I don't see the point of doing a record any other way. I mean, you know, hiring some famous sidemen to come play with me or something like maybe that would be great. But, um, but really for me, the band, the band feeling is paramount to everything. Um, it's paramount to any like, you know, that's much more important than like showing off anybody's individual sort of, you know, 
feats of technicality or something like that as as soloists or anything like that. So yeah, I mean we we had played this music for some time before we recorded it and that was really important component just kind of developing and having it having it morph over time and um as i started playing with these guys more some i would bring in music that sort of fit their personalities as i as i saw it and trying to trying to find the right balance between between pushing them somewhere a little different from where they might normally be but having it be something that comes from um a, a space that that they can sort of represent in a in a sincere way and that they can basically be as expressive as themselves as possible. Do they also push you given their mm-hmm. varied musical backgrounds? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, um you know, seeing as I told I mentioned like Jeremy does production production work, so like seeing some of the his own band and seeing some of the other bands that he produces for, that uh, even though it's in a more rock kind of context, like that, those kinds of sounds are really things that I've taken into consideration. And, um, and Xander lately has been doing some like video even stuff. And, you know, they're, they're, they're both really like exploring a wide range of different things. And, and as much as possible, I've been trying to like, you know, learn, learn from that, you know, and, and synthesize it into something that works as a band. Sure. I'm not going to pretend like this is something I knew, but uh, you told me uh, when we were off the mic about the influence of uh, literature on Mm -hmm. the way uh, you make music. And so I'd be interested in hearing more about that. Yeah. Well, the the way I write, I mean, I like to read in general and um, I, I like to, I've been fascinated lately by sort of fairly kind of modern novelists and things like that. And around the time I was writing some of the music for this record, I was reading uh, Roberto Bolaño, and more lately I've been reading David Foster Wallace, and we'll see how that kind of manifests itself. But um, but but one of the things that kind of fascinated me about Bolaño and some of, his, some of his books, he has one that was published posthumously called 2666 and another called The Savage Detectives. Um, is there... there I think this is a modern thing in general, but you don't maybe, I don't know, to me, just thinking about it in a different medium changed the way I approached it in music. He's kind of got these little plot lines that are each very compelling on their own right, but they, they're they loosely connected, but they don't really come back together. And they take, you, you were mentioning sort of these left turns, and they kind of take these left turns, and suddenly you're in a different place, but it somehow works as a whole. And just the... the um, the way ideas uh, uh, play out against against and with one another over the course of some span of time, I think was something that I was thinking about. There's one tune on the album called From the Abyss, and it starts off uh, a certain way, and there's a couple little rhythmic ideas, and it's very, it's sort of little sketch, kind of, kind of a little sketch, and we're improvising around certain things, and um, it basically goes through some stuff, and by the end of it, it's it's in this this like almost like kind of like western like Ennio Morricone kind of thing and um I just liked the sense of the of the contrast of of these different the the setting off this very sort of pretty simple almost naive melody with this kind of really chaotic thing that came before and it's not something that directly comes out there are little thematic ties but there's not something that like directly uh, leads into it in this in this way, and it um, to me it was it was something that was 
I wouldn't say directly modeled after, but inspired by um, literature. And I think, I think to me, something that's just really powerful is, is checking out other art forms and other mediums and seeing how, um, how people are putting stuff together and how they're making something that's, that's resonant in some way, that's emotionally resonant in some way and saying, well, huh, um, I know that I can't, I'm, I mean, I'm constrained in a very different way. Like I can't, I can't do what they're doing, but I can take the idea of that and, um, trying to operate and create in that, in that sort of approach to me is really interesting because if I'm just trying to, if I'm, if I'm listening to a musician that I really like and I'm saying, oh, wow, I really like their composition, then it risks mimicry. I mean, it risks being um, just sort of a cheap imitation of that. And hopefully, I mean, I've definitely checked out plenty of musicians and hopefully I don't, you know, hopefully it doesn't sound like a cheap imitation, but the idea of taking from some other world entirely and saying, how can I make this fit in the world of what I do, I think is really fascinating. And it sounds like you also have to be comfortable with some amount of ambiguity that, that idea that yeah. not everything's going to resolve or be you know in some hollywood fashion clearly interrelated and- right exactly yeah it's it's about um and because i i'm kind of a, i'm self-taught as a composer and i'm and i'm i would even say like fairly new to writing in the sense that i wasn't writing a lot of music uh when i was when i was in high school or re- really even very much in college um only a little bit, and I'm still a pretty slow composer. It takes me a long time to write stuff, and I get long bouts of writer's block, and it's torture, and blah blah blah. But, um, but yeah, this idea of how do I put ideas together where they kind of make sense as a piece of music, but it's not just oh, well, you took that A section, and then you, you know, and then you rhythmically uh, interspersed this, or blah blah blah, or you, uh, you know, sometimes as a last resort, I'll get into like using twelve tone method or something like that. But it's, but it's sort of it's always at the it's always looking towards the end result of well am i going to make something that kind of sounds interesting to me and um if i can't think of some if if there's not a connection i mean i have a lot of little sketches and if i don't like see the way certain sketches might fit together into a into a broader picture then maybe i'll try to generate things in some other more artificial almost like mathematical way or something like that but again with that most of that stuff i just throw away at the end but it's part of you know it's sort of part of my part of the process maybe but um but yeah having the ambiguity in there is i think really important just just to leave people kind of uh asking questions a little bit um a friend of mine who was studying at the New England Conservatory with Danilo Perez a uh, great young piano player named Jason Yeager he um he told me that um well, uh, uh, Wayne Shorter's album, I think it was Beyond the Sound Barrier, which had been, I think it was nominated or won a Grammy. And there was some, a little bit of consternation from the people in, in the, in the quartet because I guess Verve never so much as called up Wayne and congratulated him. Never mind like plastering the advertisement on the front of the magazines like they do for other people. And Danilo's take on it was apparently that, well, Wayne plays music that's about questions and people don't like, people, people don't like the questions to be asked, you know, but, um, I think asking questions in in musical form is very important.
talk about how much uh, control or direction you gave where the kind of sonic environment was concerned. So, for example, the sounds, the guitar sounds that were used, or uh, the way the drums sound in the actual recording or in the context oh, yeah. of the band. Well, as far as the recording, I mean, I definitely had some ideas for that. Um, just as far as like how we recorded it and things like that, and I t- and I worked with Don, the, the engineer who also mixed the record, um, on some of that. But um, as far as the actual way the guys played, I mean that was that that was a matter of that choice came in who I selected for my band. You know what I mean? Like um, you know, Xander has a very very uh, certain. I mean, they both have a very certain like range of sounds that they like to use, and Xander has several pedals and. So some of his pedals buzz all the time, but that's kind of part of his sound, so it's okay, you know. And and it's and it's it's um they both have this this approach that's not too clean. It's um, but but there's something that comes through there because of that, you know. Neither of them are the really like slick like jazz guys or something like that. They're both really, um, in my mind, organic. And um, Jeremy has this kind of approach of. Um, playing gigs in New York City, maybe it's almost a necessity as a drummer, but of of kind of liking playing on crappy drum sets. So whatever it is, if something's broken down, or I don't think he owns good drum sets, and he barely owns any good drum sticks for that for that matter. <laughs> but um, but it's kind of part of his sound, and he'll get some pots and pans. And there's a couple albums where he's banging on like some pan lids and things like that. And he's just when we go over to rehearse at his house, he'll be like, oh. This this sounds interesting. I think I'm gonna bang on this today, you know. And and it's and it's just that sort of um, that sort of open ended. Oh, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take some sounds, and part of my whole process is gonna be seeing how these work and how they fit together, and how um, and like I'm putting new constraints on myself every day to to force some new creative thing to come out. And I mean that that approach really resonates with me too. It's a little harder to like pick up a different trumpet every day or something like that but just that idea of all right well let's see what we're working with today um i'm going to be forced to on some level improvise just by the sheer nature of the fact that i'm playing on a completely weird drum set that i don't usually play on you know and and uh and then there's this weird metal bowl over here that i'm going to bang on sometimes i think that i think that really influences the um the sort of spontaneous kind of kind of vibe of the of the group for sure yeah and i i like that the uh the first drummer i can remember seeing who did those kinds of things probably was ted poor who oh, yeah. plays with a lot of people at kung Vu mm-hmm. and, and i saw him in the respect sex Ted. um and it reminds me of a very kind of childlike approach yeah. to the drums and by which i don't necessarily mean simple but right uh you know when you're a kid whether or not you become a drummer many kids end up banging on whatever around the house. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the same way that if there's a piano in your house, you just go and plink mm-hmm. around and see what you can find. And I really like that. I think I've always said on this show that I think we tend to like beat that out of students. Yeah. You know, that idea that it's not just these things that you buy and then have a brand name stamped on the side that can be used to generate sound, but there's mm-hmm. all kinds of things in our world that can be used to generate sound, which I kind of dig. Yeah. There's actually, um, we were we were in France this summer and we did a couple gigs with these friends of ours, uh, French musicians, a uh, band called um, uh, Irene, or Irene, as we would say. And um, the drummer in that band is, you know, a really great drummer. And one of the places we were playing, you know, Jeremy was playing on his kit, and he had all these little toys, and he had a um, uh, 
toy like megaphone kind of thing. Um, and he was using them in, in fairly specific ways in the context of some of these pieces. But that band played, and then we had kind of a, a set break, and it was in this downstairs jazz club. And Jeremy's kind of setting up the kit and everything, and he's picking up this thing. And most of the people are outside, but there's a few sort of stragglers down in the audience. And he's, in this very childlike way, playing with this little toy megaphone. And everyone in the audience is just cracking up because he's just kind of looking at it, and it's like... You press a button and it makes some sound, and he's like, "Oh, that's great! I should get one of these." You know, and it's just very pure. There's no, there's no pretension. There's no like, "Oh, well, this would be great for me to use in, in a, in a piece about blah 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 blah, where I'm in- integrating these, you know, uh, uh, aesthetic ideas or something." It's just, "Oh, that's fun. Okay, cool. Right? Maybe I'll use that." Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, can you talk? Are there uh, analogous things that you do with the sound of your trumpet? Yeah, I think. Um, Again, there's less. I mean, you're always playing on the same trumpet. Um, it's just such a hard instrument that it's not. It, it doesn't lend itself as well to picking up a new trumpet or right. picking up a toy trumpet or something like that. Um, I've never really dabbled in in like pocket trumpets or anything like that. Sure. But um, but I I do. Um, you know, I've been fiddling around with with mutes and things like that, and and I basically have like my two kind of mutes that I use, but I don't really use them in traditional ways like a harmon and a plunger but if those aren't handy or something like that maybe i'll take a plastic bottle and see what happens or um the other night i was i was or last week i was over at, uh, in bushwick playing playing with those guys actually at um uh like basically kind of sitting in with them at a show they had this different thing going on and i didn't have any of my mutes and i was just like picking up whatever and seeing what happened if i put it in the end and i don't know yeah it's 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 um it's it's just kind of a thing where where there's an element of chance where you don't really know what's going to come out every time and so sometimes it's going to fail and sometimes it's going to suck and as long as you can accept that then um it's great because the times where it doesn't do that are amazing and even the times where it does it's like oh okay well I tried that you know um, there was a uh, there's a drummer named Devin Gray I don't know if you know Devin at all and he did a he did a like a large ensemble improv over at the tea lounge uh maybe a couple months ago and i was playing in that and for part of it i was standing back um back by him back by the drums and he had this flat metal kind of cymbal and it didn't really work but i was trying to put it up and use it as a mute on the trumpet and um i don't think it was really audible whatever the sound of it was to the audience but it had this kind of great visual effect of me holding this giant piece of metal <laughs> to the end of the trumpet so i mean sometimes there's that i mean sometimes even if it doesn't work maybe it looks fun or something yeah you know i saw you uh at the local 269 which is mm-hmm. a, a a bar that has music uh here in new york <laughs> and uh yeah yes and that, yes that a is a bar that has music that is an editorial <laughs> comment yeah uh, <laughs> And I saw you there with uh, this really fantastic uh, quintet, right? Called yeah. uh, the Hands Down. The Hands Down, yeah. Uh, with Jessica Lurie, Brian Dry, mm-hmm. Michael Bates, and Sean Dixon. Right. Uh, and it was as as I understand it, the first performance of that band, and it, it sounded fantastic. Yeah. Can you say a oh, few great. words about that? So? Sure. Yeah, we had um, we had played some sessions here and there. Um, Jessica and I, and we, the first time we played was with Brian and, and Michael. So it was sort of this quintet with a different drummer. I don't even remember who. Um, and we improvised a little and read some tunes. And then, um, um, we played a couple other times quartet without Brian, um, with Andrew Drury playing drums. And it was always, you know, fun. And we read different people's tunes and stuff like that. And, um, I mean, 
you know, Michael writes a lot and, and it was great for me to like bring in some of my tunes and try to try to have tunes that I bring in that in a, in a different setting where it's more like actually like kind of the opposite of what I was describing with the trio where I'm trying to bring in tunes that are basically readable and playable on the first time, which to me is somewhat of a challenge if I'm, if I'm always thinking about doing stuff the other way. Sure. And so, um, yeah, so we had gotten together and kind of read through stuff a few times here and there. And I guess Jessica had been asked about doing something at the local 269. So she sort of asked all of us and, uh, it worked out great. I mean, we, we ran through, um, we ran through people's stuff that afternoon, but it was just, you know, the, I think, I think the, I think the musical vibe was there and, um, we're planning on playing again, actually on a, on a, on a bill with my trio as well at the end of September at Cafe Orwell in Bushwick on September 30th. Great. And there's, um, there's talk about trying to record, but you know, the, Hopefully that'll happen. Yeah. <laughs> it would be great. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that really hit me about that band was, uh, especially given the fairly limited number of times that that particular five person grouping had happened. Right. Was the, the blend. And I guess that speaks mm. to the sensitivity of each of the musicians and the fact mm-hmm. that everybody's a leader in his or her mm-hmm. own right. Right. In that, in that band. But I mean, there was, you know, there was some fairly intricate music happening mm-hmm. and uh, it wasn't just, uh, you know, 40 minutes of free blowing. I mean, there was, right. it, was it was all tunes. Yeah, there were a lot of lines happening yeah. and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, it just sounded like five people who were comfortable with who they were, but also really kind of comfortable with each other and with yeah. letting the music happen first before whatever mm-hmm. was happening for them individually necessarily. Yeah. I mean, it's been, it's whenever I've gotten the chance to play with any, any of them, um, it's always been great. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I think in that band, I'm definitely kind of like the young whippersnapper a little bit, but, um, but I always feel really, you know, welcomed and, and no one's trying to like push an agenda or something like that. It's really just about getting together and making music. And that's honestly one of the things that I've found to be, to be the case about New York right now in general, just like anyone that you meet, you know, you get together and you play with them and people are playing music, you know, just during the day, just informally for fun all the time. And, um, everyone's just into, you know, the experience of making something fun and enjoying, enjoying it and not really trying to cut someone down or anything like that. It's just really overall a very positive, um, environment. Sure. Uh, where, where did you grow up? I grew up outside of Boston. Okay. And, um, I actually went to college in Indiana though, but, um, growing up it was, it was funny. I was, I, I, you know, I started playing trumpet in fourth grade and my dad had had a trumpet around the house. It was kind of where I started. And I, I, I didn't really know anything about jazz except for the handful of albums that my parents played around the house, which actually turned out to be um, great because by the time I came around to listening to them, like I kind of knew them all note by note, like sure. uh, kind of blue and uh, Miles Davis, Porgy and Bass and John Coltrane, my favorite things. And, uh, um, they had a Roy Hargrove album, I think, you know, a handful of other things. So what they had was good, it sounds like. Yeah, what they had was pretty good. So so in the back of my head, even without either of my parents really being, you know, musicians, um, I had sort of this kind of some jazz going on. And when I came to try to look into it more, I didn't really, there weren't really, I didn't really have a lot of people like, right off the bat, like really showing me like, oh, listen to this record and this record and giving me homework assignments or anything like that. So I kind of, I picked up things here and there, but I went to the, I remember going to the, to the local library, you know, the place where the, where where every non-socially awkward kid goes to (laughs) be cool. Uh, yeah. But, um, 
and they had downbeat and they had back issues of downbeat. And that was kind of the first, you know, I could look through and I started off just really only picking up the ones that had someone I recognized on it. Um, you know, maybe there was a cover story about Max Roach or something. And, but bit by bit, I figured, I sort of came to discover more musicians. And, um, I think, I think through a lot, even like looking at the album collection at the library was how I kind of got into more, uh, more avant kind of stuff. I remember, um, I remember taking home Ornette Coleman's Free Jazz and listening to it before I fell asleep and kind of, uh, I think it gave me nightmare, nightmares <laughs> the first time. And I thought it was completely incomprehensible. And I brought it into school even and like played it in the, in the band room during lunch or something. And someone said it sounded like, uh, it sounded like the music was on fast forward. And, uh, but then I like came back to it a couple of years later and was like, oh, this is actually really pretty groovy and accessible yeah and um yeah so so what was, what was fueling these investigations in the, in the first place what was making you go to the library and check out these magazines or, or want to know more what was it that was behind that hmm well i mean i guess i i knew i wanted to i wanted to play trumpet you know and i was interested in jazz but i didn't really know i had been given one of my music teachers in like middle school had given me a clifford brown album and, um, you know, so I listened to that and again, at first, like didn't really get it and then came back to it a couple of years later and was like, oh, wow, this is, this is amazing. And, um, I think when I was in like ninth grade, I went, my first sort of live jazz concert was, was at the regatta bar. It was Max Roach with a brass quintet. Um, and it was, um, I still remember to this day, it was Rod Magaha and Eddie Henderson, who, who's, you know, one of the most underrated trumpet players ever, I think. Um, and then it was Delphio Marsalis and, um, the French horn player's name I'm blanking on, but he plays in Dave Douglas's Brass Ecstasy right now. Oh yeah. Um, but it'll, we'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. shout it out in a few minutes. Yeah, we'll shout it out. <laughs> and, uh, and I, you don't remember who the tuba player was, but I mean, it was a great band and it really just completely inspired me and you know i had max like sign my little clifford brown album at the end and stuff and yeah so it was it was something that clearly was captivating to me and i think the whole avant-garde thing like i was sort of fascinated by it because it was almost because it was weird and i didn't really i wasn't really like a i wasn't really listening to you know grunge rock or alternative rock or whatever but i kind of wanted like my music that was that that was like something that in some way, like, was pushing back, but no one else was really listening to it at the same time. And it, it I don't know, it just, it, there was something about it that I can't quite put my finger on that always drew me to that kind of stuff in particular. And um, um, over time, I mean, you know, I went, as I mentioned, I went to school in Indiana, uh, Indiana Uni University in Bloomington, which is a very bebop-oriented jazz program. Is that where David Baker is? Mm -hmm. the, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I got some good foundation there, but... But even while there, I was kind of seeking out the pe the other people who are kind of interested in more unusual stuff. And um, I remember, you know, like listening to uh, Eric Dolphy's Out to Lunch or even like Ascension, like Coltrane's Ascension, like in my dorm room when my roommate wasn't around and <laughs> having the the people across the hall, like look, giving me funny looks or something. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It just always, it, it always was something that kind of drew me in in this, in this, I guess in this way where um, it's not, you know, you go to music school these days, and most of the most of the musicians who are my age, give or take five or ten years, um, have come out of a music school music school background, and um, it's all kind of about breaking things down and and um, 
studying sort of the the tradition in a way where you're where you're where you're breaking things apart into into the sort of the sum of its parts you know the kind of aristotelian like all right this is this is this little piece and we we can dissect it and put it under a microscope and study it and that's what it is and that last part always didn't really work for me like the, the idea that oh if you just take it all into these little pieces then you're going to know the thing you're which is not true like if you if you learn a bunch of bebop licks you don't know how to play bebop you know right and i'm kind of at a point for in the same way that you cannot remove someone's heart and liver and intestines and exactly know anything and, about who they right are you person. can't you can't actually yeah you can't cut open a person and say okay here's the heart and here's the liver and here's the brain all right cool that's the person all right i'll see you later it doesn't it doesn't really work so um yeah i mean that was that was something that i that kind of always um was was ringing in the back of my head as as i was going through this fairly analytical and kind of meticulous you know jazz program and so the kinds of music that don't lend themselves to that analysis were ones that that attracted me just by the just because of the fact that um um uh, i guess as I, I guess as a reaction almost against that that way of thinking and of course you know now i don't, i don't really play very much sort of bebop i don't really play very many jazz standards gigs or anything like that um but it's almost because honestly like it's like I love that music too much to presume that I could play it in in a. I mean, it's not it, it's not where I'm coming from. First of all, I mean, it's not my background. I'm I I, I didn't grow up in the '50s. I mean, when Sonny Rollins played "Story with a Fringe on Top," that was like pop music at the time, and and now it's not. So it's 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 a different time and a different place. But um, I almost feel like part of it is just that. Well, I love that music so much that um, I'm happy to sort of enjoy it as a as a a time capsule to something that was great and not to not to presume to to be a civil war reenactor you know It's interesting, you know, that that seems to contain, like, not a rejection of that music, but right. just just saying that for you and who you are right. as a musician in the world right now, it, right. it's not it's not relevant to you as a player or writer. Right, and, and that's exactly right. It's not a rejection at all. I mean, I love that music, and, um, you know, I, I, 
I mean, the, the, there are so many, like, I think even like just memories of, of discovering that stuff tied into that, that, um, I mean, I feel very strongly about that, that music, but, um, I also feel strongly that that doesn't mean necessarily that I, that I need to play that exact kind of music. It's funny because, you know, uh, there was a time when if you went to a music school and you were playing like bebop on your record player in your mm-hmm. dorm room, that was a thing that, that would be weird. Funny licks. Right. Well, and, you would get the, the, the stories at, at Indiana were, well, back in the fifties, I mean, David Baker was, was, I think first a student there and then maybe I, I forget his exact chronology, but he's, he goes, uh, he goes back a long time with that school. And yeah, it used to be that it was a, that it was conservatory. And if you're playing jazz, that's like shun, shuns to the, to the outside. But I think around maybe the, 70s or so when jazz education really came to the fore it became i mean david always described bebop as sort of the lingua franca quote unquote of jazz and um that certainly i mean his perspective he comes from the bebop era um everyone that was that were all of his mentors came from that but um and he sees everything through that lens but i i i just don't i you know as someone who grew up in the late eighties and who grew up in the eighties and nineties, basically I can't really see it that same way. Yeah. You know, although, uh, that I can totally understand that. And at the same time, you know, avant-garde jazz or free jazz or freely Mm -hmm. improvised music or whatever term we're going to apply to it. That, that's not necessarily, that was not necessarily any more current or true. Yeah. You know, like hip or right. Absolutely. Happening in the scene. Yeah. Eric Dolphy <laughs> was, was, is pretty much, yeah. Just by, by way of scale, just as old as, you yeah. know, yeah. Well, no, and I don't even so much mean the, the, the age thing. I mean, take, mm-hmm. like take any avant-garde players who are your exact contemporaries or who sure. were 10 years older than you while you were mm-hmm. coming up. Right. That music was for the most part, totally underground. I mean, that music yeah. really does not exist. Right. In any meaningful way, if we measure its uh, societal impact. I mean, right. if we I mean, started you walking up and yeah, we would never find anyone who knew who, Right, who's like, yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I see Tim Byrne walking around the neighborhood all the time, and it's not like he's being mobbed by autograph seekers <laughs> right, or something, exactly. as far as I know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not like... I don't, and I don't even, I don't, I don't mean to say that, yeah, well, this, this weird avant-garde kind of rock influenced music that I play is somehow much more relevant than, than somebody today playing bebop influenced music. I mean, I don't think it's that. I think it's just, I don't know. I mean, I guess ultimately it's just what I, what I feel like I can relate to from my experience, both musically and as a person and, and, um, what, what resonates for me. And, um, I mean, I feel like that's the best any of us can do is just do something that resonates. Yeah. So, uh, was there a was there a, a a particular period or a a moment for you where this interest in this music kind of solidified into a a vocation rather than just something you were interested in in listening to, where you decided, mm. oh, I think I'd like to actually devote some portion of my life to trying to do this. Yeah. Well, I, I, there's a few layers to that. I mean, obviously, the decision to like go into music school, you have to be pretty sure that you want to play music. But, um, but then even that you, you, you know, you go to music school, you sort of develop the, um, the, the, the functional tools of your trade essentially. And you could choose to be a, a working sort of gigging musician playing in a variety of styles. And, you know, certainly I got plenty of experiences playing in, in various styles. And when I got out, I, um, 
or while I was in school, I did some cruise ship gigs. And when I got out, I moved to Boston and played in a wedding band and things like that. And, um, and then I mentioned to you earlier, went on, went on the road for three months with a, with a, with a, with a, a, a touring legacy swing band. Um, and so all of those little things sort of really crystallized for me, I think that, okay, well, this is, this is fine. Like I'm playing my trumpet or whatever, but, um, really what I want to be doing with myself, uh, musically is, uh, and creatively and just like with my, with my whole kind of like, uh, what I'm, what I'm looking at just, just in my, I don't know, outlook in life or whatever is, um, making something that's really feels sincere to me and, and I guess maybe original in some way, um, which is, which is a very different thing than just saying, oh, I'm setting out to be able to pay my bills as a musician, regardless of what that entails exactly. And it was definitely a very, um, I mean, the moment, I think the moment going on the road with the, with the Glenn Miller orchestra was, was, was kind of a, kind of a, uh, a turning point in some ways. Cause it was like, okay, well this is, I'm doing all those things where I'm, you know, playing music full time, but I'm not really enjoying myself. And, um, I have some ideas about music that I want to get out there and clearly I'm not getting them out there by playing the solo on little brown jug every night, you know? So, sure. Yeah. Uh, as people are listening to this, it's the 29th of August in 2011. Are there, uh, you mentioned the gig at the end of September that's coming mm -hmm. up. Are there some other things on your calendar or some things, uh, some projects you're thinking of that you want to tell people about? I think that's the main one. Um, the next, the next trio gig, the next, the next gig with Cracked Vessel is, um, September 30th at Cafe Orwell, which is in Bushwick. Um, it's by Roberta's Pizza, if anyone, uh, if anyone's familiar with that place. It's on Verrett Street. And, I th and on that night will also be actually the other band we were talking about, the Hands Down. We're gonna we're gonna be playing there as well, so it'll be kind of a double uh, double double bill of my <laughs> stuff or something. Um, beyond that, uh, Raya Brass Band is one of the Balkan bands I play with. If you're if anyone's interested in looking into that, we play all the time. I think by the time this airs, we will have just played. Uh, two days before, so two days ago, we played at Barbez <laughs> at this point, um, and I'm not sure what we have coming up in New York City in the next few weeks after that, but we do have an album coming out at the very beginning of December, Okay. and that's going to be called Dancing on Roses, Dancing on Cinders, and we're very excited about it. Very cool. So, yeah. That's great. My guest is the trumpeter, Ben Cyberson. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure to get to know you and your music. Likewise. And, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Jason.
That's music from Ben Syverson and his album Cracked Vessel by a trio that we now know is called Cracked Vessel from today's interview. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. You can become a member of this show, as many people have. And in fact, uh, people have since the membership campaign ended, which I was concerned about, but it has continued, which is wonderful. Uh, so thanks to, I think it's uh, Rashad Mobley and uh, Nikki Schreer for both becoming members recently, which is cool. You can become a member very simply at thejazzsession.com slash join. And now, if you would, please get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.